Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to a very special interview edition of the Sci-Fi Fidelity Podcast. Dave, I'm very excited to bring to our listening audience our very first Game of Thrones interview. How exciting. (laughs) Yeah, now not our first interview with a director of visual effects, but certainly this is the most high profile show that we've dealt with. Yeah, it's like it doesn't have to be Amelia Clark or, or some cast member or director or anything like that. I'm excited to be able to talk to any from anyone from this show. And the fact that we're talking to someone who created Drogon. I mean, it doesn't get any cooler than that. <laughs> no. And if you're a fan of the show, you know, the loot train sequence and just the fact that we got to talk to the guy that, as you said, created it from the ground up. Right. Thomas Shalesny is the visual effects supervisor for image engine which was tasked with creating Drogon for Daenerys to ride on and attack the Lannister lines so that the uh, Dothraki could penetrate and and get to where they wanted to be. So a great scene from season seven, episode four, the loot train sequence is what it's called amongst the cast and crew. And so we talked to Thomas Shalesny, who was part of Image Engine, which took over the visual effects for Game of Thrones in Season 7. They're also known for their Academy Award-nominated District 9, as well as Chappie, Jurassic World, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and Logan. And Thomas Chalesny actually started out as a character animator for Starship Troopers, which we'll talk to him a little bit about, and Hollow Man, as well as being the visual effects supervisor for Enchanted, Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell, and of course, Game of Thrones. But we'll actually mention Enchanted and Drag Me to Hell in this interview, too. So we had a lot of fun talking to him about a lot of stuff. Yeah, and he certainly seemed to enjoy talking about it uh, from his end. Yeah, of course. And that's why we had to do this as a bonus podcast. It was originally going to be part of our March edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. But we got going so good with uh, getting some of the really juicy details about how, about how this is done. And Thomas Shalesny is just very good at putting it into layman's terms so that we can understand and just marvel at this monumental task that they put together uh, with this loot drain sequence. So let's go ahead and listen to our interview with Thomas Shalesny. All right. Well, we're here with the brains behind the visual effects team for Game of Thrones at Image Engine, Thomas Shalesny. And he has come up through the business as a character animator for Starship Troopers, Hollow Man, among other things. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Thomas Shalesny. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you know, it's funny, you know, some of the movies that you've listed, like Starship Troopers was the first feature I'd ever worked on and still stands out as a highlight in my career. It was just the perfect storm of the right characters at the right time in my career. 
Well, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, before we dive into Game of Thrones, uh, you know, as Michael mentioned, you worked as a character animator on Starship Troopers, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects in, in 1998. So, I mean, could you explain what a character animator does, and your contribution to a film that personally I just love and watch it every time it's on? Well, uh, back in those days, and I started out as a, as a character animator, and what an animator generally does in visual effects, I mean, if anybody's seen a movie recently, they'll see these creatures and characters flying around or jumping and attacking real people or, you know, whatever, in all of these Marvel movies, you see that stuff all the time now. But we add the motion to the character. Now, that's done in one of two ways. One way would be that someone wears a motion capture suit. And that motion is then applied to uh, a CG model. That's not what a character animator does. What a character animator does is they will, by hand, will pose the characters and will save different poses. And that will interpolate into the motion of a character. So, for example, with Starship Troopers, all of the warrior bugs that are attacking uh, the soldiers, all of that motion was done by hand by a character animator. Uh, On Starship Troopers, Phil Tippett, who was my boss at the time, Uh, He's a legend in visual effects. He basically was directing the performances of all those aliens. And he would give us a brief as to what was supposed to happen in the shot. And then we would go back to our desks and uh, have to, from nothing, basically invent what these characters will do. And that's a huge challenge. It's one of the few departments in filmmaking where you start with nothing and have to end with something. Generally, other departments will have a piece of direct assistance from a prior step in the pipeline, which will kind of give them a leg up. But as an animator, you're handed a model, which is literally not moving. It's standing in a very neutral pose. And then you have to make it look exciting and cool. And that was one of the best parts about Starship Troopers is we had an enormous amount of freedom to really throw ourselves at the work. And uh, it was an animator's dream come true. And, of course, it's taken you all the way to the present in Game of Thrones. And since we are a television podcast, we got to get in with some of the Because you've got such a great background in movies. But this seventh season of Game of Thrones was just a wealth of visual effects. And, in fact, the loot train sequence, which is available on Vimeo, and we'll have a, a link to that in our show notes, You've got Daenerys riding on a dragon's back, laying waste to her enemies. So talk us through what's practical in that scene and what's CG, because some of Amelia Clark is green screen from what I can tell. And surely there had to be maybe a little pyrotechnics on the ground or something like that, or were there? Uh, Good question. So one of the unique things about Game of Thrones is that any opportunity they have to shoot something in camera, they take that opportunity. Now, that's a combination of, you know, two things. One, anything that's real always looks better than CG, always. And as a visual effects person, that's a reality I have to accept, that uh, a real person always looks better than a computer graphic person. And that extends itself to all sorts of stuff. So, for example, on the loot train sequence, we're flying over a valley. And the majority of what you're seeing on the ground in terms of the terrain That's real. That was shot either with a camera on the ground or a camera attached to a drone. And that camera would fly as fast as it could and would either, uh, you know, would be following, you know, where this virtual dragon might be. But if you look in the distant background, you'll see some unique kind of monument valley plateaus and things. That was added by another company called Allura. They did a lot of that background work, which looks spectacular as well. When you see the soldiers running around on the ground, the question is, well, how many of them are real? And I can tell you that 
a great many of them were real. And anytime you would see a bunch of soldiers explode in fire, when the initial footage was sent to us, we're like, oh, why are all these soldiers just standing around? It'd be 40 <laughs> guys standing there. And suddenly they would just explode. And they did some of the biggest stunt burns in history with 30, 40 men all at once exploding in fire. And they were inside of what appeared to be, I mean, it, I just, I cannot believe how daring and audacious the actual fire effects were. Uh, and they were all, you know, thrashing their arms around and acting. And then very quickly afterward, of course, you know, people would rush in and put them out. But a lot of that stuff was practical. And then extending beyond the immediate action area of the camera, stuff that you'd see in the background uh, with hundreds of soldiers, that stuff was added as digital doubles uh, by Allura. And in terms of Drogon, very few of those backgrounds when we're up in the air with Drogon were digital. That was always shot from a drone. And then when Drogon would uh, take a deep breath, of course, Drogon was uh, a digital effect. Drogon would take a deep breath and blow fire. That fire was also shot practically on a stage. Oh, wow. And the motion of that flame moving back and forth, left and right, had to be in very good sync with how our digital character was moving. As well, on Drogon's back, it was very rare that you would see a digital version of Daenerys. You'd always see, almost always, a green screen photograph version of her. Because again, it just looks more real. Now, I know digital characters have come a long way. In a lot of feature films, the tendency is to want to do things digitally. Because first of all, it's much faster to shoot because you don't need to shoot it. But on a, on a, on a film schedule, you also have the time to... Uh, build a model and very carefully get the eyeballs perfect and make the skin look beautiful and the hair simulation to look perfect. All that stuff takes many months of pre-production time, which on a television schedule we do not have. So the best thing to do is to shoot it for real. And honestly, it does look amazing. And so how do we make Daenerys sync up with the dragon's back and how do we make the fire sync up with the dragon's mouth the trick is is that we animated the dragon before the backgrounds were shot we animated the dragon before the actors were filmed or the fire was filmed after we had that first pass of animation completed everything else that was shot in real life was shot to match the dragon so when the dragon would bank to the left they had the actress sitting on a green screen robot controlled base that she would sit on. It looked like the dragon's back. And that was pre-programmed to bank left and right and move up and down in perfect sync with our animation. And then somehow through a bunch of, you know, uh, back and forth and a little bit of cheating, we would bring all those elements together in the final shot. That's interesting because you would almost think it would be the other way around. So that's cool that it's <laughs> computer first. Wow. Now, yeah, I, I just saw Drag Me to Hell within the last year for the first time, and, and certainly Game of Thrones is similar in the regard that there's a lot of graphic imagery. So, I mean, when you're creating visual effects, do you ever worry about presenting too realistic a vision? Absolutely. Uh, back, uh, you know, we mentioned before Starship Troopers. If you recall, there's a scene where one of the stars, Dizzy, she gets stabbed and killed by a warrior bug. And they shot the actress, and they had a bunch of blood squibs go off in her back. 
and then we added some warrior bug uh, claws penetrating her chest with all this blood exploding out of her back, and we spent weeks painting out that blood. We had to remove it. <laughs> and what blood we couldn't get rid of in an easy way, we had to carefully isolate and color black. And that had a lot to do with uh, the target audience. Even though the film, I think, was rated R, uh, they were very aware of the type of violence that would occur to the male characters versus the female characters. In that one particular example, we had to be very diligent to avoid being too graphic. Uh, we don't have any of those problems in Game of Thrones. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, the, the, the kinds of reference we have, we don't draw a picture of something gory and go, hey, this looks cool. We look at a lot of reference, which would be shocking to many people. Actual wounds, injuries, uh, surgical stuff. It's all based in reality. When I, when I first got into the industry, I had to start wrapping my head around the kind of reference that we would be exposed to and then trying to match it. And in terms of Game of Thrones, you know, uh, that show is no holds barred. And it's, it's meant for a very specific audience, adults. And going into it, everybody knows what they're going to get. And so it's not necessarily more is better, but more realistic is best. And so realistic is the best reference is not your imagination. The best reference is looking at a picture or a video of something really horrible and going, how do I put this in the context of a TV show? Now, on the flip side of that, is there sometimes when the computer aspect of the generated image, you don't want it to come across too far so that you almost are happy when you can have some motion blur in there or foreground fog to obscure it a little bit? <laughs> Everyone's happy when, when, when we have to do a little bit less work. And so uh, does having a foreground element or atmospherics help us avoid adding too much detail? Well, yes and no. In that particular example, we wouldn't have to have all the detail in there, but we build all of our characters for the worst case scenario. So we look at the basic specs of the show. Game of Thrones is high definition. The next step up, which would make things even worse or more, more difficult, would be if it was shot in 4K. Yeah. <laughs> and then to make matters even more difficult would be 4K, but 3D. And so those are the basic, that's like kind of the lowest bar that we set for ourselves is the worst case scenario. So do foreground elements help? Well, you know, in some cases they do, but we have to build for the most difficult shot not the shot where we don't necessarily need to see it. The things that atmospherics does give us is depth and scale. And I love that kind of stuff. In particular with the dragon, you know, Drogon is literally the size of a 747. And it can be very easy for that character to look small. You can make him move too quick. You know, the tendency for an animator sometimes is, uh, you know, when, when they're animating the character, they don't see all of the skin detail. I'm sure you guys have seen some of those imagery where you see the computer character, but he's just kind of gray, looks like gray plastic. Uh, that's how we see it as animators. And it takes overnight for us to see it with color on his skin. And so when it's in a grayscale mode, sometimes the character looks uninteresting. And so you want to make things move maybe a little faster, make the pose a little broader, more exciting, to try and kind of make it look more interesting. Unfortunately, then when you add all the detail to the character, you go, oh my God, that 747 looks like a toy. <laughs> So uh, you have to really tune your eye, be very careful to respect scale and distance from camera. And that's one thing that dust and smoke adds is it helps imply how far you are from the character. And that more distance hazing, the more red color that disappears from your character implies that he's 
farther away. You know, if you look at a mountain that's really far away, it looks kind of bluish. And that's got a lot to do with light scatter in the distance. And the red is often one of the first frequencies that gets removed from an image. So for us, all of those cues help tell the audience how big the character is supposed to be. And if you look at the loot train sequence, you'll even see it. Sometimes you can't even see Daenerys. She's so small that she's not even a good point of reference. So we have to rely on really being respectful for how fast the dragon's allowed to move and then making sure that he's not doing anything which is out of character. It's a, it's a really difficult balance. Yeah. Now, when you're filming Amelia Clark, I think you mentioned a few minutes ago she was on a robot at some point. But, I mean, what do the actors see when they're filming a scene with the dragon? Well, uh, unfortunately, they see a lot of green screen. And I wasn't there when they shot the motion-based photography of her, but I've shot a lot of that material before in that they're, they're surrounded by a green screen. Obviously, she's sitting on this uh, motion base, and they'll have to tell her, you know, this is the dragon. And she'll be like, oh, okay. And <laughs> it's it's, it's going to move around underneath you, and that's the motion of the dragon, and you should react to it as if it was a dragon. And you have to kind of bring them along. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Because they haven't seen what the animators have been up to. And then you'll open up a laptop and show her, see this little digital version of you. Well, this is you sitting on Drogon's back. And then she'll go, okay, I get it. You have to kind of teach them very quickly why they're on the stage in the first place. And then when they begin to understand what's going on, you go, okay, I'm going to blow a bunch of wind in your face. And that wind because the Boshin-based rig that she was on was blowing wind, high speed, is going to make your make you squint, make your hair and your clothing flap around. That's because you're flying at 170 miles an hour on a dragon's back. And then they go, okay, I get it. Because if you just push an actor out in a green screen and yell action, you get nothing. And sometimes in you know, some other films, perhaps we maybe have seen a film which a lot, has a lot of green screen and the acting seems to kind of be muted and down a level. And that's because green screen is a hard place to be. And another thing is, where does everybody look? That's a toughie. Whether it's a bunch of soldiers standing out in the loot train valley looking at the sky you know, where should they look if the dragon flies by? How do you get 50 or 100 people to look from left to right at the same time? So what you have to provide everybody is an eyeline reference and tell everyone, look at this. Now, if you're out in a valley somewhere, you might fly the drone past and say, everyone look at the drone. That's a giant dragon. Or you might have somebody running around on the ground with a pole and a tennis ball on the top. Look at that. That's the dragon's head, and it's coming right towards you, and you react to it as it approaches you because it's going to kill you. But you have to give everyone a central point to look 
because if they don't and they're looking all over the place, the shot becomes almost impossible because you don't really know where to put the character then. On a stage, in, in the example of Daenerys, they would probably have put uh, a red X somewhere behind the camera. That's where you should look. And they'd put it well behind the camera because they want her eyes to triangulate on a point in the distance as opposed to something really close to her because she should be looking a thousand feet away at the soldiers below. And the last would be, if you remember, I did one film uh, called Enchanted, where we had uh, a little chipmunk that was running around, and everybody had to look at it, and that chipmunk was CG. And so how, how did we accomplish that? I brought on, on set with me a thing uh, called a synchro mark, which was basically a laser pointer. And the laser pointer would be turned on while the camera shutter was closed. And then when the camera shutter would open, and capture the, that one frame, and it captures 24 frames a second, when the shutter, shutter would open, the laser pointer would turn off. And so the laser pointer was flickering out of sync with the camera. And what that allowed us to do is on set, everybody could look at a laser pointer moving around, but the camera would never see it. That way we never had to remove the laser pointer. That's really cool. We'd never get weird. You know, sometimes you point a laser pointer and it hits a mirror and gets you right in the eye or something like that. We never had any of that stuff because the camera never saw the laser pointer. And so all of this adds up to, can we get people to look at the right place at the right time? It completely sells a shot. Now, most of Image Engine's work, and yours as well before them, is in movies. But Game of Thrones being such a big budget (laughs) HBO series... Is there a big difference between the visual effects schedule for television versus film, um, even as it applies to Game of Thrones? Yeah, well, you know, Game of Thrones is a bit of an outlier because I kind of think it's the high watermark in terms of visual effects that have ever been attempted for television. But yeah, there's a huge difference between film and TV. One is budget and the other is schedule because, uh, you know, budget drives schedule. You know, Game of Thrones, they don't uh, has a set release date where they have to go to air. You know, films can push back for six months, three months, a year in some cases to accommodate reshoots and, you know, changes as well. Don't forget Game of Thrones is multi-episode. So you have to generate an enormous amount of material in the, you know, nine months to a year that you have to create that season. So what's that mean for us in visual effects? It means that we have uh, much, much less. Well, we have, have virtually no time to do any R&D. So on a movie, if they have a new effect idea they want to accomplish, they will have a very long pre-production process before they shoot the film. During this time, the visual effects companies can develop a new technique, a new technology, have programmers or artists come up with the stuff from scratch. Game of Thrones, we do most of that in the shot. We don't have this extended pre-production period, and we certainly don't have the same number of people involved in the show in terms of visual effects artists. So how do we develop a new look and a shot? How can we come up with something new and, and actually successful while we're already working on the shot? I staff the show almost exclusively with senior artists. That way, I can rely on their extensive background on movies and television that they can just apply their their existing skill set to develop a new look in the moment. And that means that uh, I have to trust them. And I also have to be very very careful to make sure we're all going in the same direction at the same time. So it's uh, it's a little bit of the Wild West, but I actually prefer it this way. Game of Thrones is among my 
most favorite shows I've ever been part of. But it's also by far the hardest because of the fact that we have to put in the time in the shot in the moment. It's very high risk. And uh, it's my 25th year doing this. And it feels as though everything kind of added up to being ready to take this show on. Now, we've been talking a lot about the dragon on Game of Thrones, but, you know, personally, the most challenging or maybe even satisfying element you've had to create for Game of Thrones. And I mean, if it was the dragon, yeah, but anything else? Well, at Image Engine, you know, we're we're kind of became known for our work with the dragon last year. You know, I'd worked on Game of Thrones in season four uh, with a different company where we did the first time you would see the White Walkers come out from under the snow. And they got involved in that. There was like 10 of them, I think, that came out and they got into a sword fight. I think Bran got killed in that. That was, for me personally, really rewarding. And the reason was, was that sequence was an homage to Ray Harryhausen. And Ray Harryhausen was sort of a mentor to Phil Tippett, and Phil Tippett was kind of a disciple of the work that Ray Harryhausen did. And then I went to work for Phil Tippett way back in 95. Phil was my childhood hero. And to specifically learn how to be an animator, part of the Harryhausen-Tippett lineage. And so to be able to work on an homage to Ray Harryhausen, for me, was incredibly rewarding. And it was, again most all of those whites were hand animated and uh it was a real labor of love it was certainly a massive challenge to pull it off because the, that those characters uh, uh we had to come up with a look and a style for them and that was something that we did internally among ourselves and then presented it to hbo if i were to say anything about the loot train sequence i have to say as a sequence my personal feeling is it is possibly the best directed action sequence that I've seen on the series. It really brought the audience along for a wonderful ride. And when we first start working on the post work, it really lifts our spirits to see what a great opportunity this is. And so it's not just like a visual effects reward. The fact that you realize that it was well laid out, beautifully shot, and you see the ebb and the flow of the battle, and that's entirely in the hands of the director. You have two heroes of the series fighting each other. And I keep bringing this up when anybody ever asks me, you know, what affected me the most. Are you guys familiar with these reaction videos on YouTube? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> I, yeah, I had, I had never seen those before because uh, I'd, I'd worked previously really just in film. And there's no reaction video of people in a theater watching it. But these reaction videos of you know, a bar full of people watching the Game of Thrones episode while it was airing for the first time, I'd never experienced that. I'd never known that we had some kind of a, an immediate response from people and that it was so positive. So incredibly rewarding to see a sequence that we thought was going to be great and then to see the result at the end and to see like real people really reacting. I'd never seen that before. And uh, it was an emotional experience the first time I saw it. And I'm not embarrassed to say that. I mean, it really, it struck home. Yeah, you don't get to see the uh, appreciation for your hard work a lot of times. So that's good, yeah. You spend a lot of time at your desk working and you just kind of, uh, you never <laughs> really get to see the results. That's right. Now, you can answer this last question uh, from any perspective, Game of Thrones or anywhere in your body of work. You obviously get a lot of guidance from the producers of movies and TV shows that you work on where they want a specific visual effect to come out of a very specific way. But have you ever created something that was wholly your own vision or you put your own spin on it 
so that maybe the filmmakers didn't even know they wanted it that way until you brought it to them out of your own inspiration. Uh, I would actually think that that is more the, the normal way that it goes. Oh, okay. <laughs> it would be nice to think that everybody knew going into it exactly what it was supposed to be. But the way visual effects has changed over the years is that there's so much flexibility in the digital tools that a lot of these decisions are deferred from pre-production into post-production, which means, uh, you know, back in the 1980s, before they shot a film, they had everything figured out. They were very diligent, really careful, because when they shot something as a visual effect, it was shot on film. They couldn't go back and easily change a miniature or uh, can you add a little blue to this or change the animation on that by three frames? Those are all virtually impossible without a full redo. So nobody wanted to do that. But now as the digital tools have advanced, we can make revisions on these shots right up until, you know, days before the show goes to air or the film, you know, they lock the cut and they deliver the final on a film, which unfortunately means when they hand the photography to a visual effects studio, it's pretty common that they'll go, okay, here's what we think it's going to be, but we don't really know. And so you kind of try and tease out all the information you can. And then a lot of the responsibility for coming up with what this thing is going to look like happens in the visual effects department. And sometimes you will look at something and go, how can I add something to this that still follows the basic parameters of what they need, but we can make it awesome. Because, you know, you can't expect a director or a producer to have all the answers. I mean, they're filmmakers, but they don't know, you know, they haven't worked on the films I've worked on. So maybe I can add a new idea to something. And so we'll often try to pitch ideas back. And sometimes you go, you know, they'll be like, yes, let's do that. Or they go, nah. And you go, okay, you just move on. <laughs> the, whole, the, the whole idea is to be comfortable with throwing ideas out. But if one of your superiors or the client says no, that you just, you just drop it and go, okay. And you just move on to the next idea and just don't take it personally. But, uh, you know, for example, you know, here was one thing which I thought was kind of cool was on uh, season four of Game of Thrones was with the White Walkers. The way they shot those backgrounds was they had stuntmen wearing green leotards that would be running around pretending to be the White Walkers. And that would give the actors something to sword fight with. Because sword fighting nothing looks like nothing. But if you swing <laughs> your sword at a real thing, you swing with strength. You don't have to stop your arm because you're fighting. You're not pantomiming. You're really throwing the sword. And when the stuntman swings the sword at your head and you have to duck, you're going to look at it just for a second to avoid it. And that kind of stuff, you can't get that by faking it. So you put a stuntman in there and they're wearing green suits so that we can tell who we're supposed to remove. But the question was, should the White Walkers move exactly in the same way as the stuntman? And my opinion was, because that was the initial idea, was that they should just move the same as the stuntman. And that was, went against my instincts, especially when I knew that we were doing an homage to Ray. And so I wrote a document and I submitted it to, to the client. And the document was titled, How Dead Things Move. <laughs> and the whole idea was to explain why a skeleton doesn't move like a 24-year-old athletic stuntman. And so I broke down uh, the description as to, well, first of all, they don't have any flesh, so they're going to be lighter. Uh, that means they don't have any muscles, so they might be a bit looser or weaker in their movements, but stiffer because what connective tissue still exists has shrunk over time. Their elbows would be bent, they'd be hunched over, their hands would be kind of clenched in more of a claw pose. But you kind of put a logic behind what a dead thing moves like. And so I kind of wrote this document, I added a bunch of diagrams with it and also sent a bunch of pictures of 
driftwood. I went down to the beach and got a bunch of sticks and I broke them open and said, and here's what their broken bones might look like. Before it was broken, I'd snap the stick and have some selections that we could pick from, the shapes that might be interesting. And so I kind of packaged this whole thing up and I sent it to them and they were like, go for it. <laughs> so in that particular case, you know, I had an idea in my mind as to how we could plus this, make it better and do honor to the work and in some way, hopefully exceed what their director's vision was. And I think that's why we got positive feedback on that was because in that particular case, they loved it. Now, if they would have turned around and go, Thomas, you've, that's a dumb idea. We're doing this other thing. I would have just gone, I get it. Fine. Move on. Because that's what, how the collaboration should be is that we have a million ideas and we throw out 900,000 of them and we get the 100,000 good ideas in the show. And so you have to just accept that sometimes people just throw away your ideas and in that case, it turned out for the better. Well, Thomas, you're definitely a passionate artist and it definitely comes across in the answers you gave today. So we can't thank you enough for talking to us about your work on Game of Thrones and the work of Image Engine as well. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Awesome having. All right. What a lot of fun that interview was, Dave. And I learned a lot in that interview. How about you? <laughs> oh, I yeah. I mean, it, again, it's just amazing. I mean, look, we both have a, I mean, you certainly know more about the visual aspect of computers and film and uh, than I do, but I've certainly learned a lot just from being around you. But boy, talking to him for that half hour just opened my eyes to really what's going on. Yeah, especially since I wasn't aware there was so much integration between visual effects and practical effects. And so that's just a lot of fun to just sort of picture what they had to do to make that happen. So we hope you enjoyed this interview with Thomas Shalesny of Game of Thrones. And don't forget to tune back into Sci-Fi Fidelity once again when we come back at the beginning of April for our April podcast. But until then, uh, check out our other podcast, The Den of Geek Podcast, also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Dave and I are venturing into other territories there. But if you're listening to Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll see you in April. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 